You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. zu subjektiv in diesem Fall. Sie ist übrigens heute in Bremen. Sie ist... Oh, du bist ja ausgezeichnet informiert, Liebste, wirklich. Ich will ehrlich sein. Karin hat mich angerufen heute früh. Das hatte ich natürlich auch keine Ahnung. Hast du? Natürlich habe ich ihr gesagt, dass du Geburtstag hast, Liebste. Sie sagte auch, sie würde versuchen, auf einen Sprung vorbeizukommen. Aber es sei ganz ungewiss. Sie hätte schrecklich viel zu tun. Tja, sie hat schrecklich viel zu tun. Oh ja. Ich weiß. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Cat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. On this episode, we are looking at the 1972 film from Rainer Werner Fassbender, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. It's the story of love and loss for the titular Petra von Kant, played by Magritte Kurtensen, a fashion designer, and her model-slash-muse, Karen, played by Hannah Shigula. I make no claims for these names here. We see the beginnings and the endings of that relationship as well as the fallout. Now, if you haven't seen this film before, turn off the podcast, go watch it, come on back, we will still be here. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant? I was late to the party with Fass. I always say Fassbinder, and it's Fassbinder. <laughs> I don't speak German. But I was quite late to the party on him in that I really got into his films when Arrow did that set, whenever that was. I want to say 2015, but I could be wrong. And before that, I'd like dabbled in him, but I hadn't really had like a connection to him. There was something about his work I just couldn't seem to connect, but... I kept going back intermittently and just thinking there's there's something here, but I can't quite work it out. And Petra was one of the first films where it just it just suddenly clicked with me what he was doing. And I was just like, wow, I get it now. This is like incredible. I just totally get it. And I understood 
you know, because he talked about how he was influenced by Cirque. And I thought, oh, he's like fucking with the melodrama. This is like the coolest thing. And so if it, I don't think if it hadn't been for that set, I don't know how long I would have still floated around. But there's some really good commentaries on that by our mutual friend, Alexandra Helen Nicholas. And they really helped me. I think that's when a really good uh, scholars, historian commentary can come in value because the reading of that film specifically, it just really helped me understand. And then ever since then, I just keep coming back to this one particularly. I just seem to be drawn to come back to it time and time again. So I just think it's brilliant. And I'm so glad to be here today to be talking about it with my two favorite people and heather how about yourself well actually much like cat which i'm so relieved to also hear cat that you two are a a late bloomer with fassbender because my first introduction to him was querel which i love but it wasn't the boulder that kind of rolled off the mountain i think he's a director like his filmography i mean he died young but his filmography is expansive and it's almost sometimes can be a little bit like whoa, this is a lot, you know, and I don't know. And now I'm just kicking myself for putting it off because uh, Petra Von Kant is actually my second Fassbender film. I'm a super neophyte to this. And I'm sure hopefully there's no like Fassbender fans listening to this that are going to lynch me or anything <laughs> for that. But I love him. So I come in peace. But oh, my goodness, this film is such a beautiful, slow gut punch of an experience. It's gorgeous. It's so heavy. It just made me love him. I'm like, now, like, I want to see, like, I want to get all of the Fassbender in my life and devour it because um, truly just, it's like, it's like what you said, Kat. Like, there's just some filmmakers, like, you, it's that, it just takes that one work where it, it clicks and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I get it. I get the love and I am hooked. Uh, I will join your film cult now. <laughs> Well, luckily with Fassbender, there's just a few films to watch. Just, yeah, just like two or three. Yeah. One of them might take you several days to watch, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what about you, Mike? What was like your, your entrance to this world? My entrance was World on a Wire. Way back when we talked about the 13th floor, it's based on the same book that World on a Wire is based on. And. I've been afraid of diving into the Fassbender world just because of that prolific nature of his. I mean, the guy made, well, he wrote so much and then he directed so much. He directed, I want to say over 40 films in, I don't know if you, I guess you would count Berlin Alexander Platz as a massive miniseries, but he did so much that I've just been afraid to dive in because what if I hit the wrong fastbender and I just say, I'm done with this guy, but world on a wire was great. I don't know why I didn't necessarily go back and having this episode was kind of like, okay, I really need to get back into this guy and where should I start? And bitter tears of Petra von Kant is just amazing. I had no idea. I read nothing about it before I put it on the first time. I take that back. I read one review where it said, this is the definition of sopophoric. And first off, I had to look at that word up because I've seen it before, but I didn't know what it was, but to induce sleep. So I'm like, oh, really? It's going to be like that? It's going to be long and drawn out? 
fuck that guy. I, it was fucking fantastic. Who was that guy? Who the fuck was that guy? <laughs> <laughs> On my Plex server, it shows little reviews. So it was showing, like, you know, it fucking tomatoes. It shows fucking Ugh. red tomatoes here, <laughs> oh, and then there was a green tomato splat, and I looked, and it said, definition of soporphoric, and I was like, ah. So, I loved it. I, I was really taken in by the film. I was there for the pace of it because it is very deliberately paced. I usually have problems with films that have a stage play feel to them. Like I always go back to six degrees of separation and just how stage bound that film was versus other things like maybe say like a few good men where it's like, Oh, okay. We've actually broken away from the stage. This you can see this being a stage play, but the way that Ballhouse shoots it, the way that everything moves in it, oh my god, I, I just loved it. I love films. I have like a bit of a thing for films, and I'm sure there's probably a name for them, that, that retain those like theatre qualities. Losi's The Servant would be a good example of that. They're not always formally staged sleuth. is another really good one where you just get this like very intimate cast... And you learn a lot about their lives in the world just through the dialogue and what they tell each other, but you don't actually leave like the one location and it's kind of formal. And I really love that because as a writer, I just really love good writing and it takes something in, in the writing, but also the performance to actually bring a world to life that the audience never sees. And this is just sublime because you hear all about like Petra's marriage, her family and everything. But it's basically just two people or three people sat on a fucking bed. <laughs> like when you think about it, talking, but yeah. And, and obviously the cinematography as well is incredible. And when it's done well, it just amazes me, just the art to it. I think it becomes pure cinema in a way because it, you know, it doesn't rely on flashy tricks or cinematography or locations or anything. You're just basically there. Same time next year is another really good example of that. I love that movie. So good. And it's just two people talking. And I just, re- I'm, someone's going to say, oh, there's a whole genre for that. It's called this. Well, I don't know. But I just love that when it comes up in a film. And even if it's like quite staged, I still love it. If it's well written and well performed as it is here but it's not so stagey this one there's like a nice organic feel to it even though it's very enclosed quite a miracle really when you think about it well there are some movies where you can almost see the proscenium around the edges of the screen and it is just filmed so static but you cannot say that this film is static even though we are taking place I think pretty much in one room through the entire thing, you feel like there are five very distinct acts to this, and each time it feels like it's being shot a completely different way. And even within those different acts of the film, we are moving everywhere around this location. It feels so rich, and just the way that the stage, the the set is built 
oh my God, the way that we have these wooden beams on one side of it to break up things, the way that we have Marlena, the uh, secretary, that she's framed in a different way, the way we have the mannequins and the way that they're there, these dolls, just all of this stuff. And they can break up the frame in so many different ways. It is just remarkable that this is one location and you would be amazed at how many different angles they can get and how important that framing is. It's just remarkable. Every single frame in this movie is like a painting. The composition is absolutely exquisite. I mean, there were some there were shots in this film that literally just took my breath. I was like, oh my God, like this shot is so good. And the way that Fassbender adapts this from the stage is like you take the intimacy of like having been con- confined to a stage and somehow apply that to a, to a vibe, to an atmosphere. It's not even just physical. You're with this character. You're with Petra the whole time. And it's almost at times disquieting. There's like a, a, an emotional discomfort, especially as everything ends in tears. And it will end in tears, bitter tears, in fact. <laughs> but, <laughs> see what I did there? But, uh, but I mean, it's but also like, especially for hot take McGillicuddy, who left that review on whatever thing you saw there. Like, <laughs> I, I think the pacing in this, I honestly, I realized I thought I was only 10 minutes into it. And I was already like at the 40 minute mark. You're, you're just you edit. You get so absorbed into that world that half an hour just slips by. And also, I noticed the use of music in this is die. I believe the word, I have, please guys, correct me if I'm using this term improperly, but it's like diegetic. Like, there's no soundtrack as far as having like a film score or anything like that. Like, the only music you hear is when she plays a record. Which almost kind of feels like a cool sort of precursor to Dogma 95 and that whole school that would come later. Though I prefer this infinitely, probably to almost anything that came out of Dogma 95. <laughs> yeah, they're actually using like lights and dollies and, and, and equipment here. Yes, though, though I will say the finest moment out of Dogma 95 is the shot of Herzog and his underwear yelling on the lawn and Julian Donkey Boy. I think every movie should have Porter Herzog in his unders yelling in somebody's front yard. I would actually watch a superhero film that had that shit in it, but I wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> but I will pay for Fassbender. <laughs> and, and the music that's used here, which I think is only like, what, like three songs, three or four songs? Four songs altogether. There's five acts, four songs. So I was very conscious as far as what songs go with which act and which act doesn't have any music to it the music it when it's used it's it enhances all of the right things it tells you so much about the characters i mean and and the characters are so riveting and these actors you know you just can't take your eyes off them and you keep wondering like it's like an onion like which layer am i going to see revealed next it's so fascinating and so much of this is Petra talking and her revealing things about herself through her dialogue, as well as through some of her actions, the outfits that she wears, the wigs that she wears, the makeup that she wears or doesn't wear. Each of these acts has her in a different outfit slash wig slash makeup configuration other than the first act and the last act, which have her in her natural state. I keep talking about these acts, but the way that they are shaped 
it's like you're living through a day because we start in the morning and we work through. And then the last one is obviously night. It is time. She's back in bed to go to sleep. But also, yeah, to your earlier point, so much of this takes place in bed and around the bed. The bed is that centerpiece of this whole set, except for I think it's the fourth act where the bed is just gone. And I'm not sure exactly where it went, because I think we're in the same room, because the room has this wonderful white carpet that almost looks like she's standing on a cloud or sitting on a cloud. And it's just really, really cool to see those shots, especially the beginning of that fourth act when she's there on that cloud-like carpet um, laying down and right by the phone and keeps getting phone calls and they're never from Karen. She wants that phone call from Karen again and never gets it until the very end. Well, I think the fact that it's set up as a woman's space is, wow, which probably turned that chode off on, because, uh, you know, it's just like two hours of women talking. Oh, fuck that, bro. I can't even take five minutes, man. I just want to poke my eardrums out with an ice pick when a chick talks that much. Well, he was probably hoping to see, like, some hot lesbian, like, sex scenes, too. And he's like, I didn't even see any titties. What? It's so incredible to be in this space, though, because it so very rarely happens in film. And by, I know men are mentioned, but... By having them in the peripheral, it allows you to really focus on the like codependent elements of these different various relationships that we've got on the screen. And Petra's life, you know, as a divorcee, she's just left a marriage. She's gone into doing her own fashion business and, you know, she's trying to make it in this man's world. She's got this friend, Sydney, who seems like she's thinks, you know, well, well, I don't necessarily agree with your life choices here. It talks a lot about ageing in women, and I see this film as like a midway point. I don't know if you two have seen The Killing of Sister George. Well, it's basically Beryl Reed and Susanna York, and they are in a very sadistic lesbian relationship. And it's often like noted as a as a queer film. It was a it was um Robert Aldrich, but it came out in sixty eight and it was like one of the first films to actually show lesbian culture, like scenes of it are filmed in actual clubs in London and a lot of the extras are actually queer people. But that's not really the focus. The focus is, that is quite kind of theatrical in a way because a lot of it is focused around this flat and you have Beryl Reed, who's the older one in the relationship, and Susanna, and she has been a successful TV show personality she's on some soap opera but her time is coming to an end because she's aging and she's starting to feel very insecure in her career and so this the the home shots are sort of intersected with her in the studio and uh, and she has this much younger lover Susanna York who is a bit like the caring character in that it's quite clear she's around George because of who she is and what she's like an up and coming actress and obviously thinks she can use it and coral brown comes onto the scene she's a producer and it becomes like the third wheel 
But that film, again, is less about lesbian titillation, although it has um, an orgasm scene in it, which made it an X certificate, but more to do with like eliminating male characters so you can actually see these other things that affect women. So things like ageing for a start, things like not being married at a certain age and things like going against conventions. Because if you think these films were made during the time when... I mean, Petra's, what, 1972, Sister George is 68. You know, a lot of women are still in very traditional marriages at this point. And so it's more about these sort of outsider women characters with the with the men removed from that landscape. And I'm not saying that Petra was influenced by Sister George, but maybe it was. There are a couple of similarities And then, fast forward, you get to Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy, which more or less travails the same ground in that you've got an older character, younger character. They have this sort of sadistic relationship and it's all about power play. Although that one exists in a universe where men don't even appear to exist, whereas Sister George and Petra are set in the real world. So I think those three films make a really interesting fascinating trilogy when it comes to women's film like quote-unquote women's films because by eliminating like romance around men and I know it's like people would think oh it's not a big deal but the amount of films where women's characters solely revolve around their relationship to a dude they're fucking legion you know and and so to have something that's not about that it just feels to me, even now, even though Sister George and Petra are like, what, over 40, 50 years, in the case of Sister George, 50 years old, they still feel so fresh, so so needed. And they're, um, and we do occasionally get films, like more so now, like Portrait of a Lady on Fire recently, but not so many of them. So I think it's so special for that because you don't get all these... Uh, like you actually get to know Petra and who she is and her business things and and her attitude towards motherhood, which isn't particularly uh, conventional. You know, she's a very cold character and, and all these things. And yet she is still like sympathetic. You know, she can be a total bitch Petra, but you still will really feel for her. Um, and it's just so wonderful. I know Fastbinder always had difficulties, say, uh, with uh, some of the women that he worked with. But quite often, his the way he portrayed women was incredible, like deeply transgressive and against the status quo. Margit Karstensen, like her performance as Petra... She is so riveting, and especially because, like, and Kat, I love that you pointed this out, because Petra is a truly human character. There are times where she is deeply flawed. There are times where she is, like, she is so mean to her secretary, assistant, kind of slave, Marlene. And I love Marlena. Marlena, for me, is actually the character I'm riveted to the most and she has no dialogue at all. She's almost like this ghost. Oh my God. It's just this beautifully made up ghost played by Irm Herman. And she looks like, um, there's this painter I love from the 1920s named Tempera de Limpic. De Limpic. See, I'm just going to butcher all of the names of artists I love today. (laughs) Lucky, lucky listeners. But she looks like one of her paintings. Like she's so striking. 
and your heart just breaks for her. And just with a look on her face, it's so exquisite. And and I love it. But I love a film that can be bold enough to have your lead character not always be likable, but to still be so skillful between the direction and, and Karstensen's performance. You're right. You do. You deeply care for her. And there's, there's part of that raw emotion where I think anybody can tap into some of that. I mean, obviously, like most of us aren't super fancy German fashion designers and lesbian relationships uh, in the 1970s. <laughs> but but that raw human emotion that unites all of us that, you know, I think everybody's gone through something that is just torn. You just feel like your heart's being ripped out of your chest. That's the kind of the beauty of film and art in general is with those moments that unite all of us. It's, it's the human condition. I love the way, talking of what you were saying about it being human, though, they don't other the sexuality in it. It's not an othered state. And it's the same with Sister George. Actually, if you look at, like, cinematic lesbianism, especially in the early 70s, you've got this, like, whole kind of outpouring of... I mean, I love them. I wrote a whole fucking book on Daughters of Darkness, which I actually compared to Petra von Kant in my book. Because there are aspects that are similar in the relationship between Dalfing Serig and then the young women in that film. Very like claustrophobic and codependent and manipulative and controlling and based on insecurity. But the way that lesbianism is treated in this is not there as like a fucking straight fantasy. What you have is like pure human relationships, which I think is even though the relationships themselves aren't necessarily very pretty, that one scene where Marlena lays across the glass, oh my God, that is one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen in a film. Just this one shot where she looks away and it just conveys this pain and this unrequited love and just... It is incredible and so human, you know, like you said, Heather, it's like, it's not like, let's get the titties out, you know, she's got this young model, would-be model round, you know, none of that is used, it's not othered, it's just presented as these women are in these relationships and this is completely natural. But 1972, that's fucking groundbreaking stuff. Do you see the relationship between Petra and Marlena as some sort of BDSM relationship? Because that's how I read it. Yeah, totally. There is, you know, just where, and there is this sort of strange bonding between them as well because of the dances that they do. And she often clings on to Marlena or they have physical contact. But like Heather said, Marlena never speaks, but she's always watching. And she is just, she is incredible. But there is this sort of uh, S&M, which is another reason why I think of um, Sister George, but that's more graphic in terms of its S&M. But there is this like weird sort of codependent S&M thing going on that's never spoken about. And I kind of love that it's never explained because, again, it then doesn't turn it into a fantasy projection. For, for a male audience. Well, and there's such a, a mystery about it for, for much of the film. I mean, at one point, and I don't know, this may be just me, but like early on when uh, Petra's talking uh, with her friend Sidney 
about, you know, just going on about like her marriage and just and just really being brutal about her ex-husband. And you see you see Marlena like with a tear, just like these she almost looks like those statues of of Mary, of like a weeping Mary. But I almost was like, are we gonna have a reveal that like Marlena's like the husband and she transitioned? Like I, <laughs> <laughs> I spent most of the film being like, we're gonna find out she's the dad, right? And then it's like then later on you find out the father of, of Petra's kid actually died while she was still pregnant. So it's a different husband. But uh and no, she's she's not she she wasn't trans. But um spoiler. <laughs> But but that's kind of the, the thing about this film, though, is it, it has such a the way everything is kind of built up is so organic and just so rivet. How did that guy think this movie was snoozeworthy? I tell you, fucking Philistine. Because he just heard women talking and obviously his ears just shut off. People need to be grateful that, like, we don't have powers of, like, pyrokinesis. So it's just some dumb broad talking about a marriage. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> That was Carlo Cavagna from aboutfilm.com that called it soporific. And then uh, there was a one from the New York Times, Nora Sire, or S-A-Y-R-E. Even those who love pain will be frustrated by the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. I just don't understand how you cannot, if you love film, how you cannot find this film fascinating from the cinematography to the writing to the performances to the gorgeous art design. Like how you cannot find this film fascinating. I just don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. Like even me when I when I came to this film, you know, I was slightly resistant to Fassbinder by that point because. I can't remember what I'd seen, some of his earlier ones, but they just didn't click with me. So I wasn't expecting to like it. And like you guys were saying, within the first sort of 10, 20 minutes, I was just hooked on it. And I've seen it like several times since then. I just have to keep coming back to it. And then I just notice new things in it every single time. It's just such, I just don't understand what what are you doing to just not engage with a film like this? It is just pure brilliance for a film that is literally takes place in basically one space the entire run where we are never uh, allowed to see anything outside of like petra's home there are so many cool little touches the fact that like she's surrounded by little fantasies there's always these little dolls and there's mannequins you know basically sort of these material objects that are sort of presenting sort of like a fantasy of humanity and femininity, but they're not, but it's not real. It's almost, and, and then you see just the real raw shit she's going through and just seeing these dolls around it. I don't know. It's it's so. It's amazing that she does it with the makeup as well. This kind of building up this mask, this facade with the wigs and the makeup and the costumes. But when you actually see her without the makeup, you know, she looks quite rough. I'm not being disrespectful, but you can see she's been going through a lot and uh, and just how she continuously keeps trying to build up these these fantasies and illusions around herself that she is this like carefree spirit in this successful businesswoman. But when we first meet her and she gets that call from the fashion house and pretends her diary is full. Watch often what she says and the reality that we get through other clues and not the same thing. 
Yeah, she lies a lot. She lies about that. She also is lying to her mother because her mother's on the phone at the beginning. And she kind of puts the phone aside and is talking with Marlena, you know, get me this, get me that, work on the drawing, all these things. And she's like, oh, sorry, mother, there was some noise on the line. I'm just like, okay. So it really helps set you up right from the beginning that she's not necessarily to be trusted, but you want to trust her. So when you hear those stories about her husband, it's just like, okay, is this true? Is this not true? I don't necessarily know what to believe, what not to believe, but I want to believe her. I want I, I want to like Petra von Kant so much. I were there with her for two hours, and I'm just fascinated by her. I thank you, Fassbender, for letting me be this fly on the wall to experience life with this woman for two hours. It's just a, amazing. To me, that's so honest, because it's, it's easy for people to kind of watch a movie, and if a, a character's you know, human, like, oh, they're dishonest, they're a villain. And it's like, she's not a villain. She is a heroine. But, you know, I mean, how many times do people... Sometimes it's not even anything on purpose, but like human memory is not always to be trusted. Is anybody on the planet 100% of the time a reliable narrator? No, like, it's just it's it's our it's a flaw in our DNA as people. And and the fact that she even sometimes contradicts herself, because like when she's talking with Sidonie, Sidonie mentions humility uh, with, with relationships, and Petra's kind of disgusted, like, oh, that word. But then later on, when she's talking with Karen, she mentions it in a positive way. And I was like, oh, that is what a smart touch. What a cool touch. Because that's it's things like that that just are being, you know, this is a director who loves you because he's giving you this film. This is that's this is how good it is. When art is truly great, you feel like it's an act of love because it is. I think she has to believe those lies, though. I don't think she's malicious. It's almost like she's built up this rosy tinted sort of delusion around her to help her cope with. I mean, we don't the only way we know about a divorce, for example, is what she tells Sydney. We don't actually know what happened. Um, we know at this point she's unreliable. But also, one thing I've always wondered is, is she even the fashion designer or is it Marlena? That's what I wondered too. I was totally thinking that because of the way she's like, oh, you changed the sleeves. Oh, that's really nice. And it's like, okay, was that really your design or not? And the way that Petra looks, you can compare her to all of those mannequins that are around the room. She basically looks like a living mannequin. She's got that same, those poses that she does, and she is just rail thin through the entire thing. But the physicality kind of helps, especially as the film goes on, because she looks so frail. She physically looks frail, which sort of matches the emotions. But then it, then she can kind of dress her up where she looks, you're right, like an elegant mannequin, just those long limbs. She has a grace about herself. And, and the way that she poses next to people, like when she's interacting with Sidney, like, you know, the body language of that, and especially when we get to her her first sort of dinner with Karen... Like, well, she's like the super predator in that. That's why I thought, and it didn't surprise me when I was researching my Daughters of Darkness book, I found out that Dauphine Serig in, I think, 1977, played Petra on the stage in London with Angela Pleasance's Marlena. And I would have fucking killed to have seen that. I could just, both of those two, I could totally imagine. But there is like a similarity in that, that, is it the third act when Karen comes in for dinner, the date or whatever it is when she comes around 
Um, but they just talk that same sort of energy that Dalphine has in Daughters of Darkness, where she's very claustrophobic, very touchy and getting very close to Karen. And, you know, it's like watching a spider come after a fly, which is why when you get to the next act and you see how their relationship is backfired on Petra you just feel so bad for her even though in the scene prior to that she's basically just trying to manipulate what she sees as is a, a young vulnerable person for her own end although the clues are there because Karen says to her I just like lying in bed reading magazines and so when she's taking advantage of Petra that's exactly what so she's not lied to her she's not lied as much as Petra lies she 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 is really lazy you kind of feel bad for her and then in and then you're like why do I feel bad for her though she she kind of brought this on herself and she's so mean to Marlena but like Heather said she's so frail and damaged that there's just so much more to her I was just thinking actually go back to the don't want to keep bringing him up but isn't it weird how so many dudes think 12 angry men is a fucking masterpiece but then we can't have like the the female version of women talking in a room <laughs> Which I love 12 angry men, that's not to slag it off. You know, they can accept 12 men talking in a room, but... I mentioned BDSM earlier, and that act where it's their first date, those outfits are fucking crazy. The chains that are around, those kind of like breast protectors that Petra is wearing, the skirt that she's wearing, or, or dress that she's wearing, which has... It looks like a rope going around her legs, and there's a moment she where she's walking. walking. It can, she's like hobbling, and her shoes are like really uncomfortable as well, so she can only move her feet. And then Karen comes in, and she's got that huge collar on, like a slave collar, and I'm like, wow, okay, I'm really you know seeing that. I love, too, that is the scene where they're getting to know each other, and that's the only scene, and I'm going to put this in quotes, where Marlena talks. She talks through that typewriter, and there are moments in that scene where you cannot hear or barely hear Petra and Karen because Marlena is typing so fucking loud. It is wild. And I love that that's kind of her voice. She's so passive aggressive, though. I love Marlena. She's like so, <laughs> she's so passive aggressive. I wanted to read what she was typing so yes. badly. I'm I know. Like, I want, I love her. And Karen's dress, her dress reminded me of the outfit in Camille 2000. Yeah, and the party where she's caught the collar, and it's it's very it's very Metzger Metzgeri. <laughs> Metzgerian, Metzgerian. Yeah, designer on that was somebody called Maya Lemp. He only seems to have done. I don't know anything about fashion though. Uh, only seems to have been attached to that one film. I thought chicks dug that stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, when we're not putting I'm on lipstick <laughs> and like and knitting. I do love costumes, so I have to say I have a real thing for costumes, so I'm very girly in that way. Which is why I love period set films. But the the costumes in that scene are like beyond the Thunderdome level. <laughs> Bizarre. They are just so gorgeous and weird. I saw an interview with Karstensen where that particular dress she had worn in a play. And I can't remember what play it was, uh, which makes sense though, because to me, like the especially like the the upper part of it, it looked like something from like a like an opera. It almost looks like this. This is the choice she made. <laughs> but also, 
so that they're not going out and they're basically sat on this bed again. So they get all dressed up and Petra's all dressed up, but she's so uncomfortable, obviously. And she's trying to drape herself around and shuffle along and, and you know, makes it quite absurd. But just all these little details in, in all these little things is what makes it such a rich film. And um, I often find some of his work from this period, and I'm not massively versed in Fassbender at all. Um, like you two, I'm quite intimidated by his body of work. So I just dip in and out sort of intermittently and digest pieces because uh, I, I think it's something you could just lose yourself in for a good two years if you, <laughs> if you were going to go full into it. And I've seen people do that and I fucking admire that, but I just haven't got the time for that. But this one, his earlier films I saw quite austere and use like a lot of muted colours and things like this. But the the design on this really stood out to me as different from the things that I'd seen before that because it is very decadent. In a way, like Mike mentioned, the carpet, that sort of white shag pile carpet. You've got the mural on the wall, which is really colourful, the costumes. And so it's visually, it's just so interesting, just seems so different to the really muted colours that, that he was using in other films around this period, like lots of browns and very sort of realistic settings. We have to talk about that painting that's on the wall that takes up almost the entire... Well, it takes up the entire wall, but it's not the entire painting, which I also find interesting. It kind of cuts off at a point. And the way that things are framed... We've talked about Bauhaus and the way that he's framing things. There is... Sorry to say it, there's a penis just right there, center frame, so much of this movie. And I'm just like, the the way that these things are framed, it is wild to see how he's placing the naked body of the woman and then the standing figure, I guess, of Bacchus slash Dionysus. I think that it's him on the left and then it's Midas on the right because he has taken away Midas's power of, of turning everything to gold because... Midas couldn't eat, so he had gone to Bacchus and asked to have his power removed. So we've got that there taking up this entire back wall. And yeah, it's the cock is so prevalent. And that men are such presence in the movie by their absence. And that eventually that's really what breaks up Petra and Karen is that she has danced with a black man, a big black man with a big black cock. And then she gets a call from Freddie. And I know I like to read way too much stuff into things, but when she's talking about Freddie, I suddenly start thinking about Freddie from my fair lady and that weird relationship of Henry Higgins building up Eliza Doolittle. And then Freddie's the one that ends up getting the girl and leaving Henry Higgins there pretty much alone and broken. And it's like, oh, okay, this is interesting. It's very much how Petra has taken Karen and lifted her up. And then off she goes with Freddie over in Paris. And we have left Petra alone and broken by the end of the film. No, I agree with that reading. I don't think it's too far reaching. It's really interesting, actually. She does, I think she takes Karen in because she thinks she can control her it is like a codependency thing she she sees her as a fixer-upper i think yeah. 
I'm going to make you the most famous model in the world. Yeah, and then she kind of builds her up just for her to leave. And that's what leads to Petra just breaking down because she can't, she wants to control everything. So like the way she micromanages and controls Marlena, but she can't. It's like everything slips away from her, even Marlena eventually and she's just so desperate to keep that control and I think control for a woman has a very different connotation because we generally don't get to have a lot of control so Petra's had to sort of build herself up as this force in her work as a divorced woman and so on and so forth so it's become like so important to her to like control everything and she thinks she can control Karen but the lesson that she gets is no you can't and you can't even control Marlena you you can't control anything but to go back to the Cox for a second because anyone who follows me on social media will know I love this subject Um, (laughs) hashtag cat loves cock (laughs) (laughs) and we don't get enough cock in film i'm sorry we don't so we get a very beautiful cock in this one but if i ever make my fortune i will have a big cock mural on my wall that that is the life goal and also someone to serve me gin in bed oh yeah as well (laughs) on a little tray Gin was mother's milk to her. Can we talk about, I just, how many times we can make a drinking game whenever there's that little, that little toast, was it like post? My wife was not really watching the film, but I had watched a documentary about Fassbender and then I rewatched Petra and she was like, this is the movie you're watching the other day. And I'm like, maybe kind of. And she's like, oh, I recognize this word and this word because she was just hearing this German being you know, said on screen so often. And she, yeah, she would latch on to different German words and be like, oh, that sounded like they said this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I also, when, uh, when Karen just nonchalantly is just like, you know, talking about his big black dick, I clapped. I'm sorry. That made me laugh. So... <laughs> So I felt bad for Petra, but... Yeah, there's me going, oh, it's a woman's space, you know, but of course the cock is all over it, so there's that as well. And does that mean it doesn't pass the Betridale test? I'm not sure. Does it pass the Betridale test, or do we get through a single scene without mentioning a cock? That cock is pretty ever-present until the Marlena very end. Marlena would pass end. it. Yeah. <laughs> Unless she's just typing cock, cock, cock on that typewriter. There's a director's cut that we desperately need. <laughs> I love that Marlena and and Petra have this unspoken agreement, and I use that as a pun. At the end, when Petra tries to show her some compassion, and she's just like, hey, tell me about yourself. When she finally asks Marlena to speak, that's when Marlena's like, nope, I'm out of here. And I love that packing up scene at the very end. It's just amazing. The way it's shot again, the way she's moving across the screen, going off screen, coming back. This whole idea of what's on screen versus what's off screen is fantastic as well. I read a great article speaking of that painting. They were talking about how important it is that that painting has no frame to it. That is just takes up that space and we can look at the frame of the film as a frame but then marlena is breaking it by just going off screen grabbing something coming back putting it in that suitcase going back off the other side bringing something back and that she takes the doll that was a gift to petra is interesting to me that 
I thought the doll was representing Karen. Like, here's this doll mother that will replace Karen in your life is how I was reading it. And then there's no doll left by the time Marlena leaves. She takes the doll with her. She also takes a gun, which I love. There's just at one point she just she you, she you see her drop a gun in her suitcase. I was like, damn! And it, 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 all the while, you know, the great pretender is playing. That ending is legit one of my favorite endings. I think now and at, at, at film, like it's one of them because it's so. It's like whoa. It's like that. It's one of the things that almost takes your breath a little bit. And the fact that she took this raggedy ass looking, what kind of gift was that? Sydney? Like, what a, I don't think Sydney's a good friend, guys. Like, she yeah, gave, at least gave her something well, with clothes on. Yeah. About the divorce and the, and the, when she's talking about the husband and them having some sort of open marriage and everything. And she's all kind of poo poo about that as well. She's a weird friend, Sydney. Yeah, she's a friend of me. I think is the term. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but especially because she comes in and she's now a baroness. And it's like, well, honey, if you're a baroness, why'd you get her this flea market doll that looks like it's something from SVU? The doll is so sad looking. <laughs> and it does kind of look like Karen. It looks like a bedraggled Karen baby doll that's been left raped and freezing in the road. It's a sad doll. I don't know if you guys were stunned because when uh, we see Petra's daughter, Gabby, pop up, and I kept thinking, this girl looks so familiar. And then it hit me, it's Ava, it's Ava Matz, who's in Herzog's Wojciech. Yeah, incredible. I, oh, my God. I love that film so much. I love her. Like, she's, and she's great here. She's, I think she was only, like, 14, 14 or 15. She was so young here. This cast is so good. Just when everything just breaks down. There she is with this giant flower. She has this amazing sort of choker that has this giant, like, red flower attached while she's just sprawled on the floor, drunk and crying and going back and forth between that little whore and that I miss her and I love her. There's a typo negative song. <laughs> And I love Typer Negative. It's like, I'll, I kill, I'll kill you tonight. But it's the whole thing is the middle of the song. Like, Peter still has this dialogue that's back and forth just being like, you know, you fucking bitch. And then it's like, baby, please take me back. I'm sorry. You know, and it's just, it reminded me so much of that. of just like, you know, when unhealthy relationships break apart, that's, you see people, you see that dynamic where it's like, it's half hate because you're hurting. You're like a wounded animal. But then it's like, but you're, you're, you're hurting because you love that person. Or you think you love. I mean, is it really love? You know, who's to say? But but it's just, I don't know, it's fascinating. The flower that she's wearing, sometimes it looks like it's sitting over her heart. And I just kept thinking, like, is this supposed to represent that her heart is not necessarily on her sleeve, but it's around her neck? It just felt like she is so exposed. And that flower is just like, hey, look at this. I am out here for everybody to see. It's interesting, though. I think the idea of love, and, and you feel sorry for her at the end because people leave her, but for Petra, I think love, I don't think she loves these women. I think she needs them there to kind of support this fantasy about herself that she's built up. They're just props around it. I mean, no doubt she loves them in her own Well, thinks she loves them, but it's not actually love. It's... um. The way that she defines herself is through these stories, the way she projects herself to other people, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this. And so when they leave, she's left with herself and it's almost like she doesn't know who she is, 
which is really interesting. It makes you wonder what her marriage did to her. Like she talks about this amazing sort of union of free minds and, you know, you kind of think, why did she leave him then? Uh, and you think maybe, maybe it wasn't like that. Maybe, you know, it was an abusive marriage or, you know, she talks about how she felt trapped there. But she's had to sort of move on and create this sort of legend of Petra von Kant. And when they all leave, she's nothing. And I just think that's so brilliant. Because women often, I was thinking about this in in respect to something else recently or writing about, I can't remember what it was, but women often define themselves uh, by relationships, you know, who they are as a mother, who they are as a daughter, who they are as a wife, you know, we have like a lot of social expectations on us in certain roles and I think the film certainly addresses that because Petra's like a bit of a round peg in a square hole who's built up these weird defense mechanisms like this mythic version of Petra von Kamp where nothing can touch her and of course we see at the end she's just this like very frail she is like that flower she's just like this very delicate damaged thing that is just can't actually survive you know for all her talk of freedom and independence she's nothing when they go like she is completely lost and I think that's why you feel for her so much because you I kind of every time I watch it I know this is awful I kind of want her to get together with Marlena even though she's horrible to her I kind of want Marlena to save her though and uh it's it's such a, a potent thing to pull off a trick like that, like Heather said, especially in terms of a whim, woman, because we are very unforgiving of women's behaviour. And yet we have a woman, you know, is openly lesbian. She brings in a young model and she has another S&M relationship. She's a businesswoman. She's a divorcee. She goes against the grain in every sort of societal norm. And yet Fassbinder present, and obviously the performance as well, presents her in a way that we can't judge her. It's quite incredible, really. Or maybe some people would judge her, but I I just think it's so subtly done, this connection between her as this childlike, very frail person and then the myth she creates. Because he, pe- like Heather said, it peels off those layers you can't judge her. You see why she's acted like she is. She's just acted because she's very desperate and very lonely as well. I think that's the takeaway from the end is she's just so lonely. There is no judgment. And that's so that's such a beautiful thing. And it's such a rare thing because we're I think our society, especially people are so encouraged to judge and just leave it at that. And that's why, honestly, I think that's why we have so many issues because, you know, we're, we're not encouraged to have empathy for, for others and understand, but also be honest, like who's perfect, you know, <laughs> like who in this life has all of their stuff together. We all are human and that's beautiful and it can be painful and ugly too. And, and that's what we're seeing here. It's like, you know, I mean, yeah, she's, you know, she's obviously second to win any mother of the year awards. Like your, your heart, you, but you can feel bad for her and her daughter. Like, cause you feel bad cause this poor kid, you know, her mother is having a complete meltdown, calls everybody in the room, including her daughter, a bunch of parasites, then starts talking about, you know, in this sort of almost these were very romantic terms about killing yourself. 
Uh, I mean, you're like, God, this poor kid, but you also feel bad for Petra. And the fact that the film gives you that and gives this character enough dignity to show her as a human being, as a multidimensional person. And and not a lot of films do that, then then or now. I, I don't think you see that enough. And so when you do get it, it it's such a special thing because it's so it's just so honest. I love that. And it's also, especially, you're right, like, because kind of speaking of what you're talking about, Kat, like, society, I mean, you portray a, a woman as anything less than optimal as a mother. People are just, like, want to burn her at the stake or something. Yeah, and this woman is a horrible mother, but it's actually okay. You can kind of see why she is, and you don't, like you said, you feel bad for both of them, that they're kind of stuck in that relationship together really they're kind of stuck with each other and you feel kind of bad for both of them because she's not cut out to be a mother and her poor daughter obviously deserves much better but you don't hate Petra for that and I think that is such a subversive thing when we see the like the mon and I love the monstrous mother because obviously I love gothic horror but the monstrous mother is a trope that just kind of entrenches that same thing of what women should be as mothers and anything that goes against that is just pure evil yet Petra isn't evil she's just this very desperate poor lonely woman at the end of the day who's done silly things out of desperation and loneliness Gabby you could tell Gabby didn't disprove her being with Karen because of them being women she just thought Karen was common class is a big thing in this that we haven't really talked about but there is definitely talking about the Baroness Sinodi and yeah, the mother is just like, I'm not sure if she's more appalled at her daughter being a lesbian versus her daughter being with a commoner. Oh, the class bit, the class bit is so good. And that's why it reminds me a bit of this Losi's The Servant, where in that you've got two guys like Dirt Bogot goes in as the titular servant, but they end up to the you know this guy who's like very rich and i'm pretty sure he's got a title and should know that because i've seen this film like about 20 times and they end up in a weird sort of snm based almost like dysfunctional marriage but it's all about uh cla- like this undertone of class and you know Dirk bogart not being good enough because he's from and his class chip and it does have I'd, I'd be interested to know if Fassbinder saw the servant because it does have aspects of the servant. Just these very subtle cut. It's, it's more obvious with Losi because obviously Harold Pinter wrote it and you love class. But just the way that and Karen is common, but that's why she she is kind of vile and common. But I kind of like Karen as well, even though she's not that sympathetic. She's just she's just trying to get along, you know. <laughs> She's just looking for the cock and the, you know, the nice clothes. (laughs) But she is like, you know, the way she flops around, she's like lazy, reading the magazines. And she's like, she's not pretentious, though, about it. No, well, especially because, I mean, we're kind of, we're shown a universe for people. I mean, like, Sidonie kind of putting up with her, her marriage, like, just so she could have that that you know sort of the the roles of that set and be a baroness i mean that's just as you know being advantageous you know as karen realistically it's just um it just it's got a a nicer sheen to it because it's more socially acceptable and because society is inherently classist especially because like she even has that one line early on talking about like oh you know i let him think he's in charge 
but I'm the one that's her. Just like, oh, God. Yeah, it's like, who are you trying to convince, love? She's just as much of a liar as Petra, I think, whereas Karen seems to be, like, the only honest person outside of Marlena, but, you know, we don't really hear Marlena. At least Karen is honest, whereas the other two, they're all about these surfaces, these sort of veneers of who they are and, you know. And so when they have that conversation and Sidney says several times, oh, my me and my marriage is very good. Or she has to keep, like, repeating it. It's almost like she's trying to convince herself not because Petra's not interested. Petra's talking about Petra in that. She's not even listening to Sidney. And so she says it almost to herself, like, time and time. Oh, yeah, I'm the one who's really in charge. And, yeah, but you, she's no different to Karen. You're right, Heather. She's had to sell out in her own way, you know, to get a title and a lovely fur coats and everything. I think what kind of was fascinating to me about the mother is that the mother seemed more, like, shocked that it's just like, oh, she was in a relationship with a woman? It's like, your daughter's having a meltdown and is talking about suicide, ma'am. Like, I wouldn't... <laughs> don't. Yeah, but think of all that society talk. When she tries to check on, on Petra and it's like, I'm not trying to reproach you, but you've basically traumatized the shit out of your kid. And, and also, Jesus, like, n- nobody wants to hear about your religious church-going activities when they're having a manic-depressive suicidal episode, okay? Just a, just a thought. It's not an insult to anybody's spiritual beliefs, just saying, maybe, maybe save the Jesus talk for later. It's like, you could watch this movie with the sound down and just watch the framing, watch what Marlena is doing, look at the outfits, the hairstyles. I mean, this movie is so rich with just so many things apart from the dialogue. And then the dialogue itself is just so fucking rich. It's just, this movie is a feast. Well, I love that line when she says to Sydney, I think it's something like, you, you, oh, you're just not used to women using their brains, like implying that she's stupid. There are so many cutting remarks, like really sly cutting remarks in this and this weird sniping, even though everyone's being sort of super polite. And it's just so brilliant because women can be the bitchiest, but Petra's like the queen of the takedown, well, when she's powerful. Obviously not when she's lying on the floor, soaked in gin. Seeing her break down, is, it's heartbreaking. Because by that time, we've spent well over an hour with her. And just to see her suffer like that. And yeah, she's just manic with panic uh, about Karen. And, and is she ever going to hear from her again? And then we do get a call at the end, right? And it even seems like with that, that that Petra's back to kind of playing games where she's like, oh, Paris? No, I can't make that. I'm sorry. And it just feels like it's that whole thing of like, you've called me, but now you're going to have to play with me on my terms. It's all about power, isn't it? And I don't know an awful lot about Fassbinder, but from what I've seen in the work that I have seen, it's just, and and again, to go back to that Losi connection, because Losi was like obsessed with power dynamics often in these like intimate settings he was just obsessed with these like power plays that people had over each other and how sadistic and cruel they could be to one another, which I, I personally find fascinating anyway, because people can be very manipulative and, you know, always try and get the upper hand. And it seemed to be something he, he continuously looked into, like Losi did the, the same thing. 
I just find that a really, really fascinating thing. But in Petra, it's like played out pure, you know, with, with nothing hidden. You, we, he just makes us party to a little games. And I, I love that. Cause it's like, oh, are we clever enough to get it? The thing that hit me so hard too is not only seeing, you know, seeing this character that we become so sort of intimate with go through this completely just ripped raw nerve of a breakdown, but the fact that like she's mourning when you see people mourning a relationship that was already just kind of a lie. It's not even like, you know, something that was organic and nurturing at one point and just went bad because sometimes shit happens. But no, I mean, from the start, you know, it's just, I don't know, to me, it just made it even more sad. It's like, God, to be that, to think about you being that lonely, where you're, where you're literally, you're mourning something that's basically just kind of like a facade when your whole life is a facade and, and, you know, and then you have like, it end with the great pretender. I mean, when that song queued up, my jaw dropped. I was like, Oh, it's brilliant. It's, it's not pad at all. Like it, it just, it hammers home just so much. Everything about this film. It's just haunting. It's absolutely haunting. I saw a really good breakdown of the film by um, uh, professor Jane Shattuck, I believe is how you say her name. And she, she was very questioning as far as, is this a woman's film? You know, it's made by a male filmmaker. We, We'll kind of have the same discussion next week when we talk about the Duke of Burgundy on the, on the next episode. But also, is Petra, is that Fassbender? Is he putting himself into that role as far as like, you know, people leave me, I'm this suffering artist, all this kind of stuff. And I, I think I need to read more about Fassbender to see if that would really shake out or not. He definitely treated him, Herman, like he treats, like Petra treats Marlena in the film. And she came out much later on after he died and talked about their very codependent, abusive relationship because they had a romantic relationship, but also collaborated on so many films together. And that's a really interesting point, actually, because he did have these very destructive relationships with people. Anna and was just a very intense person by all accounts. Uh, or you'd have to be to make that many fucking. I mean, like the guy was like, oh, I don't know. I know he was on a lot of drugs as well, but just to have that pure talent and just be that prolific and keep up that pace, you know, until his early death. But him, him, and you know, was his Marlena in a way. So it's and it's interesting that she allowed herself and like she continued to work with him and allowed herself to play a role like Marlena that is an interesting reflection because you have to think how did she feel in that role you know did she feel like that they were kind of playing out these these same sort of dynamic that they had in their own relationship there was a, a really good mini like featurette on the Criterion release of this where they talked to uh, Erm had already passed at the point they made it, which which I I hate because God she's she's amazing, but like they talked to Hannah Shula, they talked to Mar Margit, they talked to Catherine von Grassenab, um, and Eva Matz, and they at least I believe Hannah is the one that said that uh, there was kind of like a real life counterpart to Karen. It was a man. As a male actor, but basically, like Fassbender had a relationship with this this actor that was very similar to what Patrick goes through with Karen. 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, he was obviously a very complicated person. And I've seen sort of recent or more recent articles that sort of talk about how abusive he was. And it, it fast one is a difficult one because I've often argued we need to give up this idea of the tortured male creative as an excuse to allow abuse. You know, this this idea that we cling on to the Charles Bukowski, you know, dr- or drug addled or alcohol, alcoholic addled sort of abusive genius that are always male. You know, I think that excuses a lot of bad behavior and we need to kind of let go of that weird romanticism that's kind of built up over the years i find it hard with fassbinder though because he was so like he was so much part of his work obviously he was in a lot of pain because of the way he lived his life this is where i get unstuck on my own argument because he was abusive to the people that he worked with he was deeply abusive to um herman I mean, obviously, she was there consensually, so, you know, they had that relationship, but it's like, fuck, where do you, where do you draw the line <laughs> on something like Fassbinder? Because so much of his cruelty and frustration appears in his work and in a masterpiece like Petra. Maybe that's why we do love Petra, because, you know, it, it, she's so honest because she is a reflection of him. I don't know. I can't hate the man, even though he was a bit of a shithead, really, especially to poor him, but not just to him, you know, to his various lovers and his collaborators and, you know, he's a, hot, he's a tough one. It's like that uh, that song that's in Repo Man, Pablo Picasso, where it's like, you know, nobody ever called Pablo Picasso an asshole, but it's like, I'm pretty sure Pablo Picasso was called an asshole by a lot of people. <laughs> No, it's funny. Actually, I do, as somebody who does love Bukowski, I, I at the same time, I totally agree. I, I think just the concept of the tortured artist I don't hate needs Bukowski, to die. Though. I don't hate Bukowski, but you know what I mean? No, I completely, well, because the problem is how many asshole dudes were like, that tried to be like Bukowski by being drunks and awful, and they didn't realize... Bukowski was a great writer, not because of that. Nobody's a great artist because of their various demons. Like, a great art is from the soul. Like, you can be a great artist and have a perfectly happy life. I think I, I totally agree. The whole mythos of this, the long-suffering, tortured artist needs to fucking die. Especially because it's led, it's led to us losing so many great artists at a young age because people romanticize things like chemical dependency. And, I mean, that's how we lost Fassbender. That romanticism of bad behavior, I agree 120%. And it, it needs to, you know, put, have a stake put in its heart and be beheaded because it's, you know, it's it's just it's bullshit. Folks who listen to this show know how much I love uh, charts. I would be very curious to see a chart of who worked with Fassbender on which films because I know he used a lot of the same actors multiple times. I am curious as far as how those relationships were, how long they lasted, how many times he worked with the same male actors versus female actors. There's a, a really good documentary out there called uh, Fassbender to Love Without Demands. And the interviews with the male cast members versus the female cast members is so strikingly different. And it feels, well, it feels like there's a lot of ambivalence between uh, with both uh, sexes uh, with the way that they worked with Fassbender but 
to hear some of the male ones, it feels very much like he was pursuing them. And then if they rebuffed him, then they weren't in the next film kind of thing. So it's very fascinating to hear that. And then also, especially to hear about, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but the main character of uh, Ali Furies, the soul, just all of the weirdness between Fassbender and him over the years sounds just kind of wild. See, that was another one of the films that really kind of uh, sort of, you know, clicked for me was that one. Karen, so I'm going to attempt her name, but I, <laughs> is it Shilgula? Hannah Shilgula? Sure. Yeah, is that right? She she worked with him a few times, and uh, I really loved her in oh, was it The Marriage of Eva Braun. That that was, a, again, about a, a character that's kind of forced to survive and, you know, set in World War Two, and she loses her husband and has this affair and she's like a bit of a femme fatale in that one that's like i really enjoyed that one but the women seemed to last a lot longer with him maybe they were a bit maybe they had more of a maternal instinct towards him or they were a bit more forgiving but they definitely seemed to some of the actresses that he worked with seemed to sort of return especially him herman being one like continue and maybe understood him a bit more, even though I think he was equally mean to men and women. It wasn't like a misogynistic thing, was it? He was just, he had no self-control by the sound of it and a huge libido and a, he, he was all about the id, <laughs> that guy. Give me the coke, give me the sex. One of the multitude of fascinating things about this film is finding out that they had little to no rehearsals for this film, which, I mean, given how, like, perfectly... It's crazy, isn't it? Right? It's, like, it's everything... Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and hardly any shots, and none of it was... Pe- it's like, ha- how? I know. It's, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like, okay, he's clearly a magician and a wizard, because everything is, like, so perfectly timed and placed, and especially because, like, I mean, you know, one could point out, like, some of the actors, like Margit, she had played Petra on stage, so she, you know, was kind of prepped for it, but some of the other actors were not in the stage at all, like, even Matt's wasn't. I don't think Hannah Shula or Shiga, what? Sorry, Hannah, we love you. Also, I will say in the cartoon featurette, Hannah Shula has this amazing, like, white mane of hair now. Like, she looks like the kind of, like, earth mama goddess you run into, like, at a natural food store, and she tells you about aromatherapy, which I think is amazing. Like, I totally would trust her, too. I'm like, okay, girl, I will listen to you and put some lavender on my pillow or whatever. But just the fact that, like, they were able to just make this film so quickly. Yes, it's, it's, I think he didn't he write the script in like half a day or something as well. I think something like that. Like he wrote on a plane ride. How alchemy is this? <laughs> <laughs> this film is proof positive that I think to any like aspiring filmmakers that a lot of people go into filmmaking thinking, oh, you have to have these huge budgets and you have to have all of this big grandiosities. And it's like, you don't. Like, you just need, a, I mean, you need a really good cinematographer, obviously, and a great writing and great actors. But those are just like your core ingredients. If you have the vision and you have your own thumbprint to create it with the right people, you can make the best film in the world and not need any of the extra millions of dollars party tricks, whatever. Yeah, not everything has to be that. You just have to have kind of just, you just have to be a genius. How's that? (laughs) 
talking of, before we wind up, there was one thing I wanted to mention actually. There, um, so I just did a, I was doing something on Francois Ozon recently, an inner nights project. I wanted to mention his 2000 film. So it's a French film called Water Drops on Burning Rocks from 2000, which was based on Fassbinder. And I don't know anything about Fassbinder's play, so you'll have to excuse me. But based on one of his plays called Tropfen auf Heistein. That film is like the perfect companion to Petra, but it's male. So it's set in very distinct acts. It all takes place mainly in a single apartment. And it starts off, I'm not going to give any spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen it, but it starts off with this much older businessman and he picks up this young guy and brings him home and seduces him, even though this guy says he's engaged to a girl and he's straight. And the kid ends up living with him and then you've got the ex-female fiance around and you've also got the, the guy... F- I think, what was his name in it? Leopold, the older man who's in his 50s. You've got his ex lurking around. And that one is set, I think, in four acts. And uh, it's got all this sadism and this weird codependency in it. So obviously we're not talking about that film, so I won't give anything away for anyone who hasn't seen it. But perfect double bill with Petra, just with a male perspective, which is like really interesting i don't know if any of these plays have english translations because i'm really fascinated to read them yeah that's a really good question because yeah i would be very curious to read this just as a play and i know that this has been restaged well you can't say recently because nothing's being staged right now because of the pandemic but as i was doing research i just kept running across different stage uh, revivals of it which i'm really glad to know that this is still out there and still such a viable uh, art form and and that people are still paying attention to it. The other thing that I found interesting is I was looking around last year when we covered They Shoot Horses, Don't They? That was a moment where I found a movie that had inspired a fashion line and a fashion show. And I also found while I was looking around for things about Petra von Kant that there was an issue of Interview Magazine that was showing some new clothes and that is a complete homage to Petra von Kant which is just amazing like you've got the white carpet you've got the uh, renaissance painting in the back you've got all of this stuff going on and just the the makeup the wigs the the two women together it's just it's beautiful and I'm so glad that it still has such a wide influence on popular culture that gives me hope for the future. <laughs> People keep because that's that's cool. I mean, stuff like that kind of plants little seeds where, you know, you know, maybe somebody who's not like, you know, a big cineast will see that and be like, wow, this looks visually evocative. I want to seek this out. That's, you know, that's a cool that's a very cool seed to be planted. Okay, so let's go ahead and take a break and we're gonna be back with a preview for next week's show. You're late. Sorry.
You're late. That's right. We'll be back next week with our 10th anniversary show where we'll be discussing the Duke of Burgundy. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Kat and Heather. So, Heather, what has been happening with you, ma'am? My website, Mondo Heather, has a brand new look and content. Check out my article on nuclear fear in 1980s music videos and so much more over at MondoHeather.com. And Kat, how about yourself? I'm going to pimp my Patreon, Kat Ellinger's Confessions of a Sinisa. You can... Find me on the Patreon where I do video essays and trailer commentaries and vlogs. I'm vlogging now, guys. I'm vlogging. They're, they're more like video essays, actually. I, I can't do the whole sort of teen, yo, guys, I'm in my kitchen. It's not it's me basically seriously talking about films. And then I had to what to call them. Um, so, that, so that's an ongoing thing. But I just received my contributor's copy for the Big Demon's box set that Arrow did. I mean, Heather did this uh, commentary on it for the first Demons film, which was like literally my most one of my most favourite things that I did. We recorded that just as the lockdown started last year, like a year ago now, which can you believe it? Um, and we're so stressed, you know, oh my God, the whole world's coming to an end. And that recording session and our research and everything was just kind of like, Oh, that was just such a bright spot of last year. And so it's so great to see it's like finally a thing now. Unfortunately, I think it's sold out or it's close to selling out. The UHD version sold out. So, um, But you might be able to get the, the normal Blu-ray version still from Arrow. And the last thing is uh, Kino are basically releasing all the Mae West, apart from her two later films on Blu-ray for the first time ever, and I'm on She Done Him Wrong, Going to Town, and Every Day's a Holiday of those nine and nine May West films I think they're bringing out, which is just like, we're living in crazy times for, <laughs> for home media. So, so that's the things. Also, I would highly encourage anybody listening to become a patron of Cat's Patreon, because I, I am a patron of it, and... Uh, you, the content you are which you're not supposed to be my patron you're like my friend <laughs> well friends friends should support each other's creative endeavors that's you know like that's, I'm a all... patron too and you're also <laughs> <laughs> Mike <laughs>
but seriously, Cat's Patreon is amazing. Everybody should follow it. The content you get is fucking phenomenal. There's constant, like, there's always new stuff coming up on it. Highly, I highly recommend it. And yeah, also get, yeah, get the demons because that, that release, it looks gorgeous. You are never going to see this film look as good as it does on this. And plus, me and Kat are fabulous. Come on, people. You know you love us. We love us. You must love us. But that, that was like seriously the highlight of 2020 for me too. We had so much fun doing that. Heather calls the film Bosch on Acid. That was one of my high five. And, and gives this Johnny Rotten uh, quote about Billy Idol being the Perry Como of punk rock. <laughs> you get all that and more, people. You get so much Heather Drain on that track. You know, it, it cracks of wisdom that is worth the ticket price alone for that. And also, um, if you guys love Lamberto Bava as much as me and Kat do, we also did a Hell's Bells dedicated three of his films. And you can uh, find those episodes over at DiaboliqueMagazine.com. So check that out. Well, thank you again, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find more about today's episode. you also find a link over to our Patreon and a link over to Cats as well, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. In my room, way at the end of the hall I sit and stare at the wall Thinking how lonesome I've grown All alone in my room In my room, where every night is the same I play a dangerous game I keep pretending she's late And I sit and I wait Over there is a picture we took when I met her, my brother Have all died In my room Way at the end of the hall I sit and stare at the wall Thinking how lonely I've grown All alone In my room
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.